When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. It's Friday. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill in New York. Poppy is off today. We have brand new CNN polling. It pits Trump versus Biden. Haley against Biden in hypothetical November matchups. One of those races, razor thin margin. The other, a blowout. The numbers also revealing how Americans are feeling about the economy, immigration, and the Israel-Hamas war. Plus, a CNN exclusive this morning from Ukraine's embattled army chief. How he says his forces must adapt to less military aid from key allies including America, as his own future is uncertain this morning. And E. Jean Carroll's lawyer revealing why Donald Trump allegedly threw a stack of legal papers during a Mar-a-Lago deposition. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, a week that saw President Biden and Donald Trump shift firmly toward a likely rematch in November, there's one thing that hasn't moved, at least according to new CNN polling, and that's Trump's narrow lead in the race. Just four points, identical to what it was months ago in the fall. The findings underscoring what advisors on both sides acknowledge will be a super tight race no matter what. But beneath the top line, the polling goes deeper. We're getting a fresh look at where each is gaining ground and each is most vulnerable. We're going to dig into those numbers. Plus, as Nikki Haley continues her defiant drive to block Donald Trump's nomination, the CNN polling gives her some new ammunition just weeks before that South Carolina primary, showing her beating Biden by 13 points in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup. The big lead there bolstering Haley's message to Republican voters that she is the one who can actually defeat Biden in the general election. Here's what she told Jake Tapper in reaction to that CNN polling. If Republicans decide that they want to nominate Donald Trump, the same thing that happened in 2018, 2020, and 2022 will happen again in 2024. You can't keep doing the same thing and think you're going to get a different result. Donald Trump will lose the election for us. CNN political director David Chalian starts us off this morning. David, I got to be honest, I resisted the urge to text you very early this morning because I'm fascinated by what's underneath the hood here. You have young children. I was respectful of that. But what stood out to you on the top line numbers? Well, as you noted, it's sort of the the static nature of the race. I mean, look at the Trump-Biden matchup here. 49% for Trump, 45% for Biden, just outside the margin of error, Phil. So a narrow Trump lead. And that is identical to where we were back in October and November in our last poll in the fall. You noted that Haley-Biden matchup, 52% for Haley, 39% For Biden, you see that 13 percentage point spread. Of course, she's got to get here. Our poll also shows she's running 50 points behind Donald Trump uh, nationally in the Republican nomination race. So, uh, yes, this is a selling point for her. But no, Republicans don't seem to be buying that electability argument at the moment. There's also an interesting look at how voters are feeling right now and how they feel about how things are going, David. And we see a slight uptick in terms of that perception about how things are going in the country. Not much of one, but a slight uptick. So 35% in our brand new poll, Erica, 
say things are going well in the country today. 35%, not a great number, but it's better than the 28% uh, that said that in October, November. And you can see we haven't been up at 35% since December of 2022. So a, a slight uptick in the perception there. Look at this broken out by party, guys. I think this is uh, really interesting here. Uh, among Democrats, independents, and Republicans, we see that uptick. So across the board, no matter which party you identify with, uh, there is this increase in uh, perception. I also want to take a look here at Joe Biden's policies and how people perceive their impact on the economy. 55% of Americans in our new poll say Biden has, wor- his economic policies have worsened conditions. Uh, 26% say improved conditions. This really has not moved since last August. David, the, the, in isolation, the numbers are not great once again, but, but the trend lines, kind of what you're pointing out right now are, are, are fascinating, really interesting to me. How else do voters think Biden's handling other big issues? Yeah, you know, his overall approval is at 38% uh, in our poll, which is basically where he is on the economy, Phil. He's at 37% approval. The two issues where he overperforms his overall standing are on protecting democracy, 42%, and the situation in Ukraine, 41% approval. But look, where he is underperforming his low approval rating, I should note, uh, 34% approval of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. And consistently we see Joe Biden's worst issue in terms of approval by the American public, immigration. I also want you to note here at how the immigration issue is proceeding and why I think we see Democrats starting to get on board with the idea of of a border security bill here. Uh, Back in 2019, 80% of Americans said the top priority dealing with undocumented immigrants in the U.S. should be a path to legal status. Now 68% say that. Whereas the top priority should be deporting all undocumented immigrants. Back in 2019, it was only 15%. And now that's doubled. 31%, clearly still a minority here, but 31% and a big increase believe deportation of undocumented immigrants should be the top priority. And in terms of whether or not the situation at the Mexican border is a crisis, you see here Republicans have thought it was a crisis for a while. Independents now, 77% say it's a crisis. And even Democrats, we see two-thirds of Democrats calling the situation at the border a crisis. Uh, that shift on uh, the border security issue is I lost astounding. I, I, I genuinely double took when I read it. It's fascinating. David Chai, and we appreciate it. We've got a lot more to get into with you the rest of the show. To that point, sure. on immigration, we know it's one of the most important issues for voters, and we yeah. saw that even in the, in the exit polls out of Iowa and New Hampshire. To discuss further, let's bring in Republican strategist Doug High, CNN political commentator, and Spectrum News anchor Errol Lewis, and former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations, Sagar Shamali. Good to see all of you this morning. Errol, when you look at these numbers, what has and has not changed, frankly, when we look at the polling here, what do you think the takeaway should be for the Biden campaign? What will it be? The number that should keep them up at night is the, uh, the, the independents kind of walking away, sort of falling into a more conservative camp, um, maybe looking askance at what the administration is or is not doing on the, the border, especially, and also on the economy. That's their margin of victory. That's their problem. Democrats seem to be on board, not entirely enthusiastic, but you can run a mobilization strategy later in the campaign. But if you lose the independents, that's where you start really having problems in Arizona in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in the key states that made the difference four years ago. 
Doug, we have to have the usual caveat. Polls are a snapshot in time. They don't say what's going to happen. They're not predictive. This is where they are in the morning, uh, in the moment. And, and that's why I think what's underneath is so fascinating, because we have seen a series of polls on the economy, even on top line, where it seems like things are starting to tick up slowly. Yeah. The bar was low, but they're ticking up. Similar here underneath the top line, but still like a long way to go. A long way to go. And when you're on a campaign or Capitol Hill leadership, when you get new polling, you look at what you can take away to promote and what you can take away to, to, to discredit. So what's your takeaway from um, this? If everything that we know about American politics right now is described in that poll. Why do we not have a deal on immigration on Capitol Hill? Those numbers, Republicans and independents, basically those numbers are going to hold on Capitol Hill. We're not going to get a deal. Those numbers explain why. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, neck and neck. Nobody really wants it. It's sort of the resistible force versus the movable object. And you have Nikki Haley with her key argument. I can win better than anyone else. These numbers explain it all. I can win better than anybody else. You look at those numbers. I mean, when you look at this, does this provide any sort of an opening for Nikki Haley at this point? Realistically. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer that she shouldn't postpone her race. There are so many states coming up left that she that we need to see where there's an actual traction there. But she made a really interesting point there when she said, you know, Trump has lost already before. Trump endorsed candidates have lost in midterms. So why on earth are we pursuing this strategy again? But at the same time, if you see what happened on Capitol Hill, for example, when you were just talking about this, you've got this deal on immigration. They got to a deal on immigration. It is the best deal that they're going to get that Democrats have changed up for 30 years. Democrats haven't come to a deal like that on immigration and to get Ukraine aid. But all the Republicans bowed down to Trump when Trump said, no, don't vote for it because it would give Biden a win. And so while she's saying this, I agree with her. Mm -hmm. They're just, they view Trump as their leader and they can't get away from it. I ask you, you know, Doug makes a great point. If you're a, a political hand, if you're an advisor, you're seeing these and, you, and you're explaining what's going on or you're changing how your message is. As a national security person, they see polls. I'm not saying they dictate how things go, but what's striking in this poll is the, the divide between young voters or young individuals that are polled on Israel-Hamas war and those that are older. And I think it underscores a very real problem, at least in the near term, the Biden team has. How do they solve that? So I'm glad you asked about this. Errol and I were talking about this earlier, that in the 20 years I've worked in foreign policy, I have never seen foreign policy dictate an election. And that is including, we have to remember, that is including times when we were in Iraq, right? Afghanistan, major wars, major drains on our resources, soldiers abroad um, getting killed. And so I just cannot believe that this issue will dictate the election for a few reasons. First, because November is actually far for a war of this kind. Things in Israel, Gaza, wars of this kind usually move very fast. So it's hard to know exactly where it will be by the time we get an election. But also because at, at the end of the day, a, a vote where you're voting for someone else or you're voting, you're staying home, is without a doubt a vote for Trump. And Trump is going to bring back the Muslim ban. And he's also going to, he was more supportive of Israel than any other past president. And so I just, it's a very short-sighted view. So I, it's, it's an important one. The White House understands it. Reaching out to that community is important. But I just can't see it dictating November election. It's not the only issue, though, right, that is challenging for Democrats when it comes to young voters. You have climate, you have the economy. They're not feeling great about the economy, even as you're seeing this uptick. So on a number of fronts, young voters are key, That's but right. does the campaign get that? Oh, they, no, they, they figured out, they know that, I should say. Have they figured yes. out their messaging? Well, the, the messaging is, is problematic at this point. I mean, one item that they've been pretty uh, intense on uh, for months now is student aid and getting some relief for that. And yet the very people for whom they've gotten this relief seem to be walking away or expressing dissatisfaction to pollsters or perhaps staying home. 
uh, they're going to have to try and figure that out as well. They're going to have to get uh, a team of credible surrogates out on the road, making the argument, making the case that uh, this is better than the alternative. You know, it's very different, you know, saying whether you like Joe Biden, and that's really what the pollsters are, are, are asking. It's very different from what are you going to do when we come down the, the home stretch and it's time for early voting? And that's really sort of the key question. So can I ask you, there has been kind of a, a murmur of Democrats who were convinced the sky was imploding upon their heads <laughs> for several months yeah. thinking, OK, the economic numbers are good. We're seeing some different polling numbers. Maybe things are starting to turn. Would you draw that conclusion when you look underneath the top line in this poll? Potentially. If we go back to this time two years ago, Democrats were convinced the sky not was going to fall, had fallen. They couldn't raise money. They had the wrong candidates. They did better than expected. The challenge for the Biden administration here and congressional Democrats is, yes, people are feeling better about the economy, but Joe Biden isn't getting any credit for it. That's the number that has to change. That's a good point. Good to have you all. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, just ahead, a deadly crash in Florida. Four homes set on fire. The plane actually ending up inside of one of them. More on that just ahead. And her son killed four classmates. Now Jennifer Crumbly is on trial for manslaughter, insisting she wouldn't have done anything differently. As a parent, you spend your whole your whole life trying to protect your, your child from other dangers. Um, you never you never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. This morning, we are learning that several people have been killed in Florida after a small plane crashed into a mobile home park. Now, officials say the single-engine plane struck one trailer home in Clearwater and three others caught fire. The FAA says the pilot reported an engine failure before the plane went off the radar about three miles from the runway. We have several fatalities, both from the aircraft and within the mobile home. Uh, we're still working to, uh, to make sure that there is no additional. He also said crews were trying to tame hotspots at the scene. Still unclear how many people were on the plane. We will keep you updated as we learn more. Later this morning, prosecutors in Michigan are set to begin cross-examining the mother of the Michigan high school shooter. Jennifer Crumbly is charged with manslaughter for her role in the deaths of four students. The prosecution says she's at fault here for buying her son a gun and also for not getting the help he needed, the mental health help, despite warning signs. Crumbly took a stand in her own defense on Thursday. CNN's Jean Casares has more now on her testimony. That was the hardest thing I had to... To stomach is that my child harmed and killed other people. The mother of the Oxford, Michigan shooter who killed four high school students in 2021 for the first time defending herself in court. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. Jennifer Crumbly charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter after she and her husband got a gun for their 15-year-old son days before the massacre. She has pleaded not guilty and appears to be shifting blame to her husband in her testimony. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Okay, explain why you say he's responsible for that role. Um, I just didn't feel comfortable being in charge of that, it was more his thing, so I let him handle that. Crumbly maintained she had no reason to believe her son was a danger to anyone else. As a parent, you spend your whole your whole life trying to protect your, your child from 
other dangers. Um, you never, you never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. That's what, that's what blew my mind. She recounted the moment her husband called telling her the gun was missing. Instantly, it just, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's, he's got the gun. I didn't actually think he was at the school shooting it. I thought maybe he walked home and got the gun and was in the field by the school. Should, I, just, I didn't imagine my son actually going into a school and shooting. And then when we got more updates, I was like, oh my gosh, he's, he's a school shooter. He's going to kill himself. Because in my mind, that's what school shooters have done. They've killed themselves after. So I yelled in my talk to text, Ethan, don't do it, because I thought he was going to kill himself. Revealed in court before Crumbly took the stand, journal entries of the shooter just days before he opened fire, killing four classmates. He writes, I have zero help for my mental problems, and it's causing me to shoot up the effing school. My parents won't listen to me about help or a therapist. The journal seen here was found in the shooter's backpack that he brought with him that morning, spilled out on the school's bathroom floor. However, Jennifer Crumbly testified her son never asked her to get help for mental health issues. Do you recall there ever being a time where he asked you for go to go to a doctor or to get help and you said no? No. Or left it? No. There was a couple of times where Ethan had expressed anxiety over taking tests, um, anxiety about what he was going to do after high school, but not, not to a level where I felt he needed to go see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional right away, no. Crumbly described threats she says she and her husband received after the shooting. I was feeling pretty scared. Okay, scared of what? Um, well, scared that somebody might hurt us. The defense also attempted to portray Jennifer as a normal mother. Every year for around uh, Thanksgiving, I always cook Thanksgiving dinner. Um, the day after, we would go cut our Christmas tree down. He was a big history buff. Um, we can play Trivial Pursuit, and he would get me in history every single time. Gene Casara, CNN, New York. Our thanks to Gene. Well, back to Washington. The House passing a bipartisan bill to help struggling families. But one top Republican is concerned it would actually help President Biden get reelected. Next, we're going to break down the difficulties in legislating in an election year. And live pictures here out of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Folks gathered to celebrate, of course, Groundhog Day. To celebrate Groundhog Day. To celebrate Groundhog Day. Oh, sorry. Uh, next hour, Punxsutawney Phil makes his annual weather prediction, and we will bring it to you live. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life 
wherever you get your podcasts. Live pictures there for you of Capitol Hill this morning, where Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is taking steps to hold the first vote on the border deal by Wednesday. And this, of course, comes as Republican House leaders suggest it could be dead on arrival. Phil, for years, I have relied on your guidance, right, for all things Capitol Hill. Why is this always so hard? How much time do you have? Not enough, I don't think. Okay, well, then I'm going to go to a, <laughs> to a tried and true thing, the cliche. Look, for all the high-minded eloquence Hollywood may want to attribute to the hallowed halls of the Capitol you just saw there, the reality is it's a building defined by cliches. Kicking the can down the road, stalemate, poison pill, nothing's agreed to till everything's agreed to, circular firing squad, in flux, jet fumes, not in the cards. They are undeniably tired and lacking in all creativity, but they have an odd way of narrating the rhythm of a place that, despite these rather low opinions ratings from Americans, managed to reach agreement on the big must-pass bills, eventually. Unless it's a presidential year. Yes, that's another cliche, but one that right now explains a Washington on the brink. So it's hard on its own. In a presidential election year, it's hard. That's Senator James Lankford. He is the lead GOP negotiator on the immigration talks, and his view is not a minority view. That immigration deal, it's tangled up in a series of major legislative lifts, emergency aid for Israel, Ukraine, and the Indo-Pacific, a bipartisan tax package, impending government funding deadlines. Oh, by the way, the federal aviation authorization, it expires on March 8th as well. These kinds of lifts, lawmakers never want to leave until election year. Compromise is bad word. Lawmakers have their eyes trained on the campaign trail and motives. Well, Nobody seems to trust anyone. And I would ask the president right now, President Biden, is it because we're in an election year that finally you get to the point where this matters? And that's why lawmakers, cliche alert, take pains to clear the decks ahead of time. It happened in a flurry of legislative action at the very end of 2011 as President Barack Obama geared up for his re-election battle against Mitt Romney. And again at the end of 2015, ahead of Donald Trump's battle with Hillary Clinton, deadlines punted until after the election, where partisan rancor ebbs, at the same time, lawmakers eye the holiday season desperate to escape Washington. There's your jet fumes cliche. Few things motivate lawmakers more than that ticket home. Now, 2020 did demonstrate one of the few exceptions to the rule in the last couple of decades. A once-in-a-century pandemic did force major emergency action. And then Congress largely closed up shop until after Election Day. Today, as all signs point to a rematch between Donald Trump and President Biden, the stakes could not be higher. But on Capitol Hill, a full-blown legislative train wreck is gripping the Capitol. Nearly all of it could have, should have, been addressed by the end of last year. Instead, with House Republicans grappling with the narrowest of majorities and constant party infighting, they're now all inextricably linked together in an election year. Joe Biden's approval ratings at 33%. Why would we do anything to try to help improve that dismal number? At the same time, the presumptive GOP nominee is now publicly flexing his intra-party power to set tenuous immigration talks completely aflame. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's OK. Please blame it on me. Please. And key GOP senators, they're balking at the rare bipartisan deal on the House, a $78 billion tax package on political and strategy grounds, like Senator Chuck Grassley, who suggested they punt the bipartisan tax bill because it would be a win for President Biden. Every day that passes without a resolution, well, that's one day closer to Election Day, which means this, according to one top immigration negotiator. 
I think whenever you're making a deal, every day gets longer and longer and harder and harder. Or to put it in Capitol Hill terms, after months of kicking the can down the road, there's a stalemate as lawmakers strain to block poison pills that would undercut any agreement. At the same time, they stressed nothing's agreed to until everything's agreed to, which is a problem since Trump and Republicans have descended into a circular firing squad that has everything in flux at a moment when there are no holiday deadlines looming and no jet fumes in the air to spark an actual outcome. Or to put a finer point on it, this is a huge problem because what hangs in the balance is of enormous consequence. And just to add one more point to that. Yeah. The other consequence, too, right, is for the American people and for this country and that lawmakers aren't doing their jobs. Exactly. Yeah. Phil, appreciate it as always. Coming up, a CNN exclusive. How Ukraine's army chief says his troops are adjusting to less aid from the United States and other key Western allies. Plus, stunning video this morning out of Nairobi, which shows a huge fireball lighting up the sky there in Kenya. A gas truck exploding, nearly 300 people injured. These new details just coming in to CNN. Developing out of Nairobi, Kenya this morning, a massive gas explosion, which has killed at least three people and injured as many as 280 others. You just see that massive cloud of fire, essentially. This video capturing the moment that the fireball took over the night sky. Officials say a truck carrying gas exploded at a cooking gas plant. This happened around 11 p.m. local time. Officials say the fire burned down a warehouse, then burned through residential homes where people were still inside. Crews working into the morning to put that fire out. There's still no word this morning on what exactly caused the truck to explode. You can see the aftermath here, though, just the charred remnants. After that, this morning, the Kenyan Red Cross says nearly 300 people were evacuated to hospitals around Nairobi. Well, turning now to a brand new CNN exclusive. Ukraine's army chief says his country is being forced to adapt to the reduction in support from key allies, including the United States. He writes... In part, we must contend with a reduction in military support from key allies grappling with their own political tensions. Russia, taking note of how developments in the Middle East have distracted international attention, might seek to provoke further conflicts elsewhere. Let's go straight to CNN's Fred Plaikin. He's live for us in Kyiv. Fred, this is fascinating because the biggest question on the U.S. side is what's going to happen if yeah. aid stops? He starts to dig into that a little bit. What did you take away from it? Yeah, he certainly does. And I think what he's recognizing is the big reality that I think everybody who's been here really sees, and that is that the Ukrainians are both outmanned and outgunned, and they probably are going to remain outgunned uh, in in the future as well. And that's something where Valery Zaluzhny, the top general here in Ukraine, really says, look, that's the reality that we have to cope with. And he says that the only way to get out of that is by using modern technology, and he refers to unmanned systems, sea drones, land drones, air drones. He said that could be the big equalizer on the battlefield. I want to read you another quote from this really fascinating uh, essay that I really urge everyone who's watching right now to go to our website uh, and read. He says, quote, our goal must be to seize the moment to maximize our accumulation of the latest combat capabilities, which will allow the, uh, to, uh, us to commit fewer resources to inflicting maximum damage on the enemy to end the aggression and protect Ukraine from the future. So essentially what he's saying is that he believes that these unmanned systems are going to allow the Ukrainians to lose fewer of their troops on the battlefield while inflicting harm on the Russians. Because the big question is, are the Ukrainians going to have the volume in unmanned systems to be able to do that, guys? Yeah, absolutely. Zeluzhny also touching on the challenge here of mass mobilization, which has been really a source of tension between him and President Zelensky. Yeah. 
It has been, and you know, one of the things, I've, I've just come back from a tour from a lot of the battlefronts here uh, in this country, and one of the things that every single commander that we met on the ground told us is they have a shortage in artillery shells, but they also have a big shortage in manpower, and it's two things. They don't have enough soldiers on the front line, and the soldiers that they do have on the front line have been there for a very, very long time, and a lot of them are tired and need to be rotated out. And that's where Valery Zaluzhny says he needs about 400,000 people to be mobilized. And Vladimir Zelensky, the president of that uh, country, didn't take to that well at all. He said, look, how are we going to do this? Who's going to pay for this? The mobilization system here in this country still somewhat of an old system that a lot of people here say really prevents them from wanting to mobilize and go to the front lines, guys. The tension you and Erica are talking about, Fred, look, there's an elephant in the room here. We are waiting to hear about what Zelensky's future will actually be. Mm. What do you know? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that, that really is, is like a cloud right now here over political Kiev, where on Monday it became clear, and we have this from several sources, that apparently there was a meeting between Zelensky and Valery Zaluzhny, where Vladimir Zelensky, the president of this country, told Valery Zaluzhny that he was going to get fired. And he apparently offered him uh, some other post, possibly an ambassadorship. That's not really clear. But Zaluzhny declined that. And yet uh, Zelensky said, look, you are out. You are going to be fired. Well, since then, um, this entire country has been waiting to see a presidential decree that would actually say that he has been fired and also who the possible successor could be. Now, one of the things we have to point out is that the top general, Valery Zaluzhny, he is extremely popular among the military and among the population of this country. So whoever comes next is going to have a tall task. And certainly folks here definitely keen to see who that is going to be when that is going to happen, and of course, if that is going to happen, guys. This is so fascinating. I mean, an accelerant to the tension was his candid assessment of things in a media interview, now yep. writing an essay. Definitely go read that essay. I second Fred's opinion on that. Fred Plaken from Key, thank you. Well, up next, Nikki Haley escalating her attacks on Donald Trump, insisting he's too old and too confused to be president. She even claims he doesn't have enough cash to compete. Plus, in just hours at Dover Air Force Base, the dignified transfer of three fallen U.S. soldiers, Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffat, were killed Sunday in a drone strike at their base in Jordan. President Biden and the First Lady will meet with their families and attend that solemn ceremony. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will also be there. This will be the first time that Biden and Austin are seen together publicly since Austin's hospitalization for prostate cancer. We'll be right back. Happening today, Nikki Haley continues a multi-day swing through her home state of South Carolina. The former South Carolina governor will host a rally in Lancaster tonight in just about three weeks until the South Carolina Republican primary. She talked to CNN yesterday as she sharpens her attacks against Donald Trump and President Biden. The reality is 70% of Americans don't want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. I mean, that's just a fact. The fact that we would have two 80-year-old candidates running for president is absurd. We've got a country in disarray and a world on fire. We need someone who can work eight years to get our country back on track. Two guys in their 80s, they are automatically going to be in mental decline. That's just a fact. Get ready to spend more campaign dollars on legal fees because those court cases have just started. He's got two in March and they go out for the rest of the year. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. Errol Lewis and Doug Heyer are back with us now. Doug, the message is undeniably sharper. Mm -hmm. She seems much looser yeah. and more comfortable. I mean, she's yeah. always been a good candidate, but more comfortable in what she's doing right now. Um, 
she still has a ton of ground to make up. When you talk to Republicans, do they see something here? Is something happening here? She has a ton of ground to make up in her home state. I think that's part of the big challenge for her is what those numbers are ultimately going to be. She's probably not going to win that state. What I hear so often from Republicans who um, either work at the RNC, which still is um, a neutral place. Uh, There was some question about that. Um, In theory, at least. Um, No, the neutrality rule 11 is a big deal. We won't nerd out on that. Um, They see a message that works. And their concern is if Donald Trump is the nominee, most likely to be, that messaging works regardless because you know, we, we focus so much on Donald Trump's or on Joe Biden's age for obvious reasons. Donald Trump's not that far behind. And both of them are at an age where you age a lot faster in roles where you also age a lot faster. And so they're concerned about this. Yeah, Trump's up in this poll. Biden might be up in this state in that poll. Uh, they see a neck and neck race where either candidate could lose to either candidate. I want to get your take on some of what we heard from Roberta Kaplan, E. Jean Carroll's attorney. So she sat down with George Conway for his podcast yesterday. And I just want to play some of this so that you hear it first. Then we'll discuss. She's talking about some of her interactions with the former president. He looks at me from across the table and he says, see you next Tuesday. You could tell it was like it was like a kind of a joke again, like teenage boys would come up with. And my colleagues are like, Robbie, do you know what that means? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? They tell me, and I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't know, because had I known, I I for sure would have gotten angry. But we have a a court reporter, we have a videographer, they're entitled to a lunch break. You're here in Mar-a-Lago. What do you think you're going to do for lunch? Where are you going to get lunch? And so I said to him, well, you know, I, I raised this question with your attorneys yesterday, sir, and they graciously offered to provide us with lunch. At which point there was a huge pile of documents, exhibits sitting in front of him. And he took the pile and he just threw it across the table. I mean, I see sort of smiling, laughing. I don't know that any of that is all that surprising. Right. 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 But it is fascinating to see sort of like pull the curtain back and see what happens in the deposition versus what you see in non-deposition times. Not a lot of daylight. So there you go. Uh, You know what you're getting. Robbie Kaplan seems to have hacked Donald Trump. She's gotten under his skin. Um, she's, she proved it in court over and over again. This is, I think, sort of more evidence that she figured out how to be exactly the kind of woman that drives Donald Trump crazy. We saw some of this with Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Gets under his skin, you know, and she knows how to sort of twist the knife a little bit, and he completely loses control. Now, what does that mean, uh, politically speaking? It doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know. He doesn't like powerful women. He doesn't like to be challenged. He doesn't like uh, really to to have to sort of abide by the rules that the legal profession and other kind of uh, esteemed institutions have normally operated by. And so he throws a tantrum. That's what he does. He's throwing a large tantrum in public from the podium. That's essentially the core of his campaign. Doug, Erica and I subscribe to a purity in language. Mm -hmm. We don't swear. Never. Um, I certainly we, we, never. Profanity is deeply never. offensive to me, which is why this moment and the pause right before it stood out to me from the president. Watch. He laughed about it. What a sick. <laughs> My God. It was funny and everybody laughed. West Wing playbook over Politico. Uh, made the point, did some reporting, made the point that he finishes that sentence yeah. behind closed doors, which if you've covered the president and you talk to his team, you know he swears, yeah. just like Donald Trump swears, just like you don't swear. Never. Um, and so that's not surprising. 
But I think what's interesting is that's one of those moments where he connects with people by being a normal human being, mm -hmm. kind of off script Joe Biden that we knew when yeah. he was in the Senate or when he was vice president. Does he need to do more of that? You know, over, swear, but overwhelmingly, like, the political bosses I've had did not swear, uh, made life a little bit easier. But I think it, it also shows, yes, that that language works now. And it works because of Donald Trump. You know, the first time Donald Trump said a bad word, everybody was aghast. And what we saw was very quickly the head of the DNC, uh, Senator Gillibrand, they started dropping F-bombs as well. Was it presidential or senatorial? No, but it works. It's some of that is generational. Young people just, mm -hmm. they use language just very, very differently without any sense of decorum. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. It's not to be transgressive. It's not to make a point. It's simply how they talk. Uh, language evolves and the rest of us are going to have to catch up. I, I do want to point one thing out, though. Like, what it is, probably more than the language or joking about whatever it is or isn't, Joe Biden loathes Donald Trump. It is personal. Mm -hmm. It is not because he doesn't like the man. It is because of what he represents. Like, that is a viscerally held view, and it comes out behind closed doors, and I think you'll probably see more of it. But I, that, more than anything else, everybody laughed, and it was, it, it was off the cuff, but that was real. It also shows a vigor that we often say that Joe Biden doesn't have in his advanced years. It's a good point. So does he need to bring more of that? I know we're out of time. But does he need to bring more of that out? Not just the language, not just being a little bit more familiar, but being a, perhaps a little bit more transparent. Transparent about how and animated. He, and yeah. it's, a, it's sort of a casual, uh, informal way of, of yeah. trying to disqualify Trump, say that this man is just unfit for office. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. We are about to witness the release of Apple's new Vision Pro headset. You're psyched. Super Stay psyched. with us because we're going to test it out right here on CNN This Morning. Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Now I'm in Joshua Tree. Where am I? Yeah, now I can definitely tell that you are not able to see me. You appear, when I look at you, you begin to sort of like ghost in a little bit. Oh, I'm a ghost. Yeah, you're, oh, ghost, you're hello, ghosting me. Hello. hello. It's just me in your virtual land, paying you a visit. That is our next guest, having some fun testing Apple's new Vision Pro headset, Apple's first mixed reality headset blends digital content into the literal space around us. And today, you can get it yourself for 3,500 bucks. Joining us now is CNET Editor-at-Large, Scott Stein, who's test driving this gadget literally right now. You can see it, his avatar is going to join us. <laughs> Scott, can I start with, the, the, the biggest question I have, who is this geared toward? Before we get Thank into you. what it actually does, who is this geared toward, who's buying this? It's a great question. I mean, Apple's riding a line between professionals and the general consumer market. And I think if you're a professional, you know, if you're looking at something that needs a super high res display, or you're someone who knows about creating in VR or 3D models, maybe training, that area. But then if you're, they're pitching as a super cinema headset to the average person. Now for $3,500, that's a lot of money, but you know, the, the experience in it is phenomenal. It's just that that is an ultra luxury price territory. It is. And there's some question about, you know, there, there aren't as many apps right now. We're also, we should yeah. point out, that's your avatar on yeah. the other side. For those who are wondering why there's now yeah. two screens and two Scots, that's <laughs> what happened. Why, <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by this because I know it's a little bit heavy. It has this giant battery. And I'm, I'm picturing myself, as you point out, if you're watching a movie or maybe if you're watching sports, do I, am I just, I just sit there on my couch with this? I mean, you can't get up and walk around with it or can you? 
You can. So the only thing is that there's a battery pack. So you have to carry that in your pocket or something or put it in a holder. But you can actually walk around with this. And the pass-through cameras are good enough that you can basically do a lot of things. I would not recommend cooking or doing anything mission critical. But, you know, you could definitely check the time. You could check messages even. It looks like you're looking at life through a camera feed. But, you know, that means you could also multitask. You could run things on multiple monitors in this and check things in the outside world, which is the feeling of some sort of science fiction, you know, world that I would be living in. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Er, Erica is tech savvy and has covered this stuff uh, in the past. I am not. Decades ago, um, before this existed. I try to be. <laughs> if you're purchasing this, what you're, go what you're looking at right now, what you're seeing right now, what you're participating in right now, explain it to a normal person. <laughs> Absolutely. So what I've set up is that I'm talking on my laptop at home, which I can see through the uh, through the through one connection. But I'm also connected via video chat on Vision Pro. So I see the two floating together. It's like I, I'm sitting in the office. I can see everything in the office, but I'm also seeing a floating monitor that's doing that connection. And then what you're seeing is my persona. That's a scanned virtual identity, kind of like an avatar that yeah. Apple uses. For, for voice connections. And it automatically works with things like WebEx, Skype, uh, Zoom, FaceTime, which it's, it, it is a computer. I mean, that they're talking about as a spatial computer. It's much more hooked in to everything that you might be doing with iOS than any sort of VR headset huh. before. So it's a computer on your face that looks like giant ski goggles. Um, in reality, you know, this is sort of, you were saying, when Phil asked, which was my main question too, who is this for, right? Early adopters, people with some money to throw around. What does this become though, right? So if this is the first thing that we're going to see, ultimately, for on a more accessible front, what could that look like for the average consumer? Yeah, so there was, there's been talk for years, and I've covered this landscape, looking at this mission to get to AR glasses, you know, like those Tony Stark glasses, something futuristic that we've seen in so many films that shows you heads-up displays, and you can, you know, see holograms in the real world and model them and all that. But I think that also means melting uh, the idea of what's a computer into something that becomes virtual that you can interact with with your hands. And, and, and a lot of people talk about it, this literally being a vision for what's there. And I think that's what it is. It's living uh, best possible model to get that experience, obviously in a, in a VR-like design with a battery pack. But what it's doing, blending realities, is pretty amazing because there's been nothing at this size that has done that. There's been nothing that's done that with hand tracking in the air like that altogether. And, and I've looked at almost everything. So I think once you do that in glasses, you could potentially use that for simulations, for training, for, you know, looking for helping someone fix something and guiding mm -hmm. them through things in the real world or assistance. There's like so many wild ideas there. But we're only, I feel like we're only at the, at the very beginning, even after all this time. Yeah. Uh, it is wild. It certainly is. The avatar's slick. Like this and slick. Scott, great to have you with us this morning. <laughs> Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. CNN This Morning continues right now. We now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. New CNN poll numbers just in. They show America's deep pessimism about the economy might be easing up. The reality is 70% of Americans don't want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. We need someone who can work eight years to get our country back on track. Alan Weisselberg. Could
could be on the verge of pleading guilty for the second time, this time to a perjury charge. Donald Trump creates a culture of lying, and if you are associated with him, you have to be very, very careful. You're taking a risk. Four of the seven migrants charged. This attack last week on two New York police officers may be fleeing to Mexico. On the back, we don't touch our police officers. What we're seeing is a collision of themes that have really deeply affected New York and the country. I wish he would have killed us instead. The mother of the Oxford, Michigan shooter defending herself. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Well, good Friday morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill in New York. In a week, that's saw Donald Trump and President Biden squaring up for a likely rematch in November. We have new CNN polling, and it shows Trump's narrow lead has not actually budged at all. He's up just four points. That's identical to what it was months ago in the fall. The findings underscoring what advisors on both sides readily acknowledge. It is going to be a very very tight race come November. The polling also gives us a fresh look at the issues where each is gaining ground and where they're most vulnerable. That includes the economy. President Biden now seeing a small uptick in voters who think his policies are improving the economy instead of hurting it. Nikki Haley continues her defiant campaign to stop Donald Trump from being the Republican nominee. She has some new ammo now, just weeks before the South Carolina primary, thanks to that same CNN polling, which shows Nikki Haley beating Joe Biden by 13 points in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup. Now, one of Haley's biggest sales pitches has been she's the only one who could actually defeat Biden in a general election. Here she is reacting to that poll. If Republicans decide that they want to nominate Donald Trump, the same thing that happened in 2018, 2020, and 2022 will happen again in 2024. You can't keep doing the same thing and think you're going to get a different result. Donald Trump will lose the election for us. CNN political director David Chayan leads us off this hour. David, when you dig into these numbers, at least on the top line, where do you see momentum here? Yeah, well, as you noted, it, the, there isn't much momentum. It's a pretty static race. 49% Trump, 45% Biden, a narrow Trump lead just outside the margin of error in our brand new CNN poll. Look at that. It is identical to what we had the race at at the end of October, beginning of November. So this is our first look after the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary of a national political landscape, and it hasn't much moved. You noted in the Haley-Biden matchup that she has a 13 percentage point lead, 52 percent over uh, Biden's 39 percent. She wallops the president. The problem for Nikki Haley, of course, is she has a rough road of getting there. She is 50 points behind Donald Trump nationally for the Republican nomination and 26 points behind him in a new Monmouth poll in South Carolina, the next big primary, guys. So those are the numbers on the on the candidates. What about the voters? When it comes to the mood of voters, how they're feeling, how do things look right now? So we asked this basic question, how do you think things are going in the country? And, and look at the percentage of those that say things are going well in the country today. Only 35% say that, Erica. That's not a big number. But look, it has grown. We've seen a slight uptick of seven percentage points from October and November on that same question. And in fact, you see, we haven't been at 35% of Americans thinking the country, things are going well in the country since December of 2022. And look at it by party. I think this is instructive. We see growth on this score across all party types. So 
Democrats see things going well in the country today. There's an uptick from 53% to 62, an uptick among independents thinking that things are going well, and even among Republicans, a seven percentage point increase on that score. You noted this at the top, guys. How have President Biden's policies affected U.S. economic conditions? 55%, a majority of Americans think Biden's policy have worsened economic conditions in the country. That's about where it was last August. He has not made up much ground here. Same thing here. Only about a quarter of Americans think Biden policies have improved economic conditions. You know, David, this everyone knows how close this is going to be. If it ends up being Donald Trump and Joe Biden, issues will matter. How do voters think Biden's handling the big issues? So on the big issues, we're talking about the economy. That sits right here. He's at 37% approval on the economy. His overall approval in our poll, Phil, is at 38%. We just lost Ooh. our graphics there. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, there oh. we go. But you see here that on protecting democracy and the situation in Ukraine, he is overperforming his overall approval. Israel-Hamas war, he's at 34% approval. And immigration continues to be President Biden's worst issue. He's only at 30% approval there. I want you to look at the issue of immigration, guys. You can see sort of the more hardline approach, if you will, taking hold uh, with more Americans. So back in 2019, the top priority for dealing with undocumented immigrants, 80% of Americans said it's a path to legal status. That's down to 68% now. Still two thirds of Americans think that's the priority. But look here, now those that say deportation of these undocumented immigrants should be the top priority. It's 31% of Americans who feel that way now. That has doubled in support since 2019. And in terms of those that say the situation at the border with Mexico is a crisis across Republicans, independents, and Democrats, we see growth. More and more Americans think the situation at the border is indeed a crisis. Guys, the Israel-Hamas war, this is a clear uh, pain point politically for Joe Biden. You see here, 37% of Americans think U.S. assistance to Israel is about right. 33% says it's too much. 29% too little. This is a divided American people. Look at it by party and you see Joe Biden's problem. Among Democrats, 41% say U.S. assistance to Israel is about right. 38%, roughly the same amount here, says the U.S. is doing too much to assist Israel. Only 19% too little. This is in Joe Biden's home turf and he's got an issue there that he's got to resolve. David Challen, I appreciate it. Way to work through those technical issues too, my friend. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> well, in a new development, the former chief financial officer of the Trump organization is negotiating with the Manhattan DA and could be pleading guilty to perjury charges. Alan Weisselberg has already served 100 days in jail on tax fraud charges. The potential perjury charge is related to his testimony for the New York Attorney General's office at Trump's civil, and at Trump's civil fraud trial last year. CNN's Kara Scannell joining us now with more. So... There's also the question of the possibility that he committed perjury. What is the impact there on the judge's verdict? Right. So we're waiting for the judge to render his opinion. That's expected this month. I mean, if you potentially committed perjury, that doesn't help your credibility. He's the defendant in this case, so it wouldn't be good for him or for the case writ large. But, you know, this is the, kind of the next step for Alan Weisselberg. He has already pleaded guilty to tax fraud charges. Now he could potentially be pleading guilty, according to sources, to perjury charges. And, you know, it relates to testimony he gave in this case 
Uh, but it's important to note that as part of this deal, you know, he has been a central figure in Trump's life for 40 years. He is not expected to be cooperating with the district attorney's office in their upcoming investigation and trial of former President Donald Trump. And that's related to the hush money payments and the reimbursements. And the, he's charged with falsifying business records. Trump has pleaded not guilty to that. But Weisberg's not expected to be cooperating in that investigation. Two things on that. One, does that surprise you? And two, does that mean that there's no effect on Trump or his legal issues coming out of this? Or is there a connection? I mean, it's an interesting thing. It could cut both ways for the former president. I mean, Weisselberg, if he reaches this deal before the trial, would be an admitted liar. And so, you know, he's someone that then it would make it harder for Trump to call as a witness if he was going to do that. You know, it's kind of this trial will come down to the credibility of Michael Cohen, who is also an admitted liar. Mm -hmm. He's pled guilty to lying to Congress. And Weisselberg, you know, is someone that was involved in, you know, concocting this scheme to reimburse Cohen to cover up the alleged allegations of an affair before the 2016 election. So it would take him out of the mix, which could um, help the DA's case in some respects. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's, it, it's one of these things that it is, it also takes a potential witness out of the realm for Trump as well. It, like the converging dynamics constantly on what you cover is <laughs> unbelievable to me. Paris Canal, great reporting. Thanks so much. Well, this morning, an update on the group of migrants arrested for attacking two New York police officers last week. An official telling CNN that four of the seven suspects have left the city on a bus to California and might be planning to flee to Mexico. Joining us now, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. John, what are your sources telling you about how this is playing out? So as you know, Bill, they were released without bail, so released on their own recognizance, uh, much to the outrage of the police unions and many of the police officers, since it was a bailable offense. And right. obviously, as people who got here a month ago without family, they have no roots in the community. Uh, but that was the decision. The judge didn't uh, hold them on bail. The DA didn't ask for bail. So yesterday, we learned that they went to a Catholic charity that helps migrants. Uh, they got four bus tickets under false names and got on a bus headed for Calexico through St. Louis. Now, normally, we probably wouldn't even be talking about this because yeah. the U.S. Marshals and detectives would be waiting for them in St. Louis. But they were released on their own recognizance, which means police have nothing to arrest them on, on the assumption, which they have to operate on, that they'll be back for their March 13th court date. The Chances of that happening when four people get on a bus with false names and head for the city that it literally you can cross the street into the Mexican border um, is probably unlikely. So that stirred a lot of controversy about about the criminal justice reform and the assault on the police officers. Um, it's also fascinating what we're hearing from officials specifically. I want to play what Governor Hochul had to say. Take a listen. Get them all and send them back. You don't, you don't touch our police officers. You don't touch anybody. Thank you, everybody. I mean, we're hearing a change when it comes to immigration in general from President Biden on down. To hear her talk about that, it is also directly related to the fact that these were police officers. Does that have any impact? Does that change anything? Well, it's so complicated because, you know, you're a New Yorker. You move through the city every day as I do. We see these people, we touch these people, they're out looking for work, they're delivering our food, they're at the gas stations and the car wash. Uh, I mean, these are people who came in waves, you know, 170,000 probably to New York City. Um, but within that group, this hardworking, you know, throngs of people in search of hope and a better life, there is this one percenter, you know, criminal element that looks at a different opportunity here. 
These individuals, I went over their rap sheets yesterday, mm -hmm. multiple charges, grand larceny, robbery, attempted robbery, grand larceny, grand larceny. Uh, this particular crew operated on mopeds and scooters. They were doing organized retail theft. They were doing snatches on the street, iPhones, iPads, clothing, so on and so forth. Um, one of them that they are still seeking has 10 charges on one day because he's part of a pattern that's been going on. And I'm looking at the dates that their arrest started, which is probably close to when they got here. They've only been here a couple of months. So what the detectives are telling me is they have crews here that operate in New York, do all their stealing, then go to Florida to spend the money and then come back. And I'm like, well, why don't they just stay and steal in Florida? And they said, because there you go to jail. Oh, oh wow. Great reporting. Keep us posted Thanks. on this. It's, Appreciate it's, it's John. really Thank interesting. You. Thank you, John. The Oxford, Michigan high school shooter's mother taking the stand, defending herself from involuntary manslaughter charges. What she told the court just ahead. And a small plane crashing into a mobile home park in Florida. Several people are reported dead. New details about what could have caused it. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. That is Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of convicted school shooter Ethan Crumbly, taking the stand in her own defense. She and her husband are charged with involuntary manslaughter for the deaths of four people in November of 2021, four teenagers. Prosecutors say the couple made it too easy for their son to access guns and that they also ignored warning signs about his mental health. It's the first time the parents of a school shooter are standing trial. The defense finished questioning Jennifer Crumbly yesterday. Prosecutors are expected to begin their cross-examination this morning. Join us now to discuss all of it. CNN correspondent Jean Casares, who's been covering this case throughout, and clinical psychologist Rebecca Berry. Doctor, I want to start with you. Were you surprised that Jennifer Crumbly, the mother, said she wouldn't have done anything different? I, I was surprised, but mm -hmm. professionally, were you surprised? I was. I was. Why? Uh, I think you would expect um, a parent who's, uh, you know, youth would who would do something like this to really um, express some remorse and empathy. And I'm not sure if this is part of her, you know, the defense for herself. Um, but certainly after such a tragedy and horrific acts, one would expect that there would be um, some explanation or accountability for that. To your point about whether this is part of the defense, that was mm -hmm. one of the things that I thought of when I saw mm -hmm. that moment was... Well, I guess if you're going to get up there on the stand and you're being charged with involuntary manslaughter, you probably don't want to say that, yes, I should have done something different. Well, her whole, as she testified, I mean, she talked about just, you know, I would take him to soccer practice. He'd be, he was on the bowling league. And she said, you know, I didn't see any mental issues at all. He was sad. He lost his grandmother in the last few months. He lost his dog and his best friend was moved out of Michigan very quickly. And he, I saw sadness, but I never saw it. So when she says I'd never do anything differently, she believes they were a normal family. And she also says, I wish my husband and I had been the ones killed. Can I play some of the sound kind of underscoring the concerns that, that were raised by uh, Ethan Crumbly? Take a listen. There was a couple of times where Ethan had expressed anxiety over taking tests. Um, Anxiety about what he was going to do after high school, whether it was college, uh, military. So he expressed those those concerns to me, um, but not not to a level where I felt he needed to go see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional. To that point, I think every parent is wonders what's the threshold, what's the line, when should mm -hmm. you 
something like that be triggered. Right. Um, what's the answer to that? Well, I think that you really want to know your child's, uh, their typical behaviors. And if there's anything that they're reporting or demonstrating, that seems like an aberration from their norm. And of course, when you start to see behaviors such as changes in their mood, sleep, changes in appetite, changes in their engagement with school or poor progress academically, you might think, okay, there's something that's happening within them is causing more of a dysfunction or a disruption for them. And she's saying, okay, he was reporting what we would maybe refer to as some normative teen you know, sort of challenges or worries about what's to come next. But um, to your point, Gene, there were also some indications that he was undergoing other types of stressors. Well, and and there's this journal, right, that came out, um, which also, so these are excerpts from his journal shown in court. One reading, I want help, but my parents don't listen to me and I can't get any help. Another, I have zero help for my mental problems and it's causing me to shoot up the effing school. Mm -hmm. I mean, the juxtaposition of those things, Gene, is something. Here's the challenge. Yeah. Parents didn't see that. Now, will the will the prosecution cross-examination try to bring out that they did see it or should have looked in his journal? We know his father referenced the journal when they went to school that morning, and it was talked about that he was sad, and his dad said, with the counselor and everybody, you know, you might want to just write in your journal. But the fact is, what the defense is trying to show is that there are a text that comes into trials these days. It it's, can be out of context. You need to know what happened after, before, you need to surrounding it. That's the point they're trying to make. I always want to step back, Gene, when we talk about this. This is unprecedented. If this leads to uh, Ethan Crumley's mom being convicted, what does that change? I think even the charges themselves are unprecedented, and prosecutors around this country could look at these charges. But if there is a conviction that tells Every, of course, the authority is in Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. Because that will be the case. But prosecutors around this country can look at where a teenager gets a gun and shoots, could be in the middle of the street, right? At passerbys, where did they get it? What were the parents doing? Were they grossly negligent? Because the theory is that they were grossly negligent with their child. Also, the theory they had a legal duty to exercise caution, and it was foreseeable in the eyes of the prosecutor, that beyond a reasonable doubt, this, this, these parents knew that a mass shooting could happen. Yeah. Um, so much more to come on this. Gene, uh, Dr. Barry, thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. You. Well, new overnight, a fiery plane crash into a Florida mobile home park, leaving several people dead. Video showing a giant pillar of flames and smoke. You can see right there as police say they found four trailer homes on fire and that the plane crashed inside of one of them. Officials say the pilot reported an engine failure just before the plane went off radar. Seen as Omar Jimenez is covering this for us right now. Omar, what are authorities on the scene saying? Yeah, well, one, they're trying to put out some of these hotspots and actually try to figure out and piece through how many people and now potentially bodies are at this particular scene. This was a crash that happened last night in Clearwater, Florida. As we understand from officials, people were killed not just in the plane, but in the home that this plane crashed into. Now, the pilot did report an engine failure, uh, according to the FAA, while they were in the air. And the local fire chief says that the pilot was able to get out a mayday call to air traffic control before going off radar just a few miles from the runway of the nearby airport. Where they went off the runway is the location of this mobile trailer park where at least four mobile homes were on fire as part of the crash and as part of what witnesses described as hearing an explosion. Take a listen to some of what the local fire and police chief had to say. 
I can confirm that we have several fatalities, both from the aircraft and within the mobile home. Uh, we're still working to, uh, to make sure that there is no additional. The scene is turned over to law enforcement, and we coordinate with our federal partners, the NTSB and FAA, to continue the investigation. Now, this was a smaller plane, as you can see the remnants of the scene there, but still, again, multiple people were on board. We're trying to piece together just how many at this point. And as you heard from some of those officials, they're trying to really get through the scene to make sure that they can investigate what happened as best they can. But obviously, a really shocking situation happening uh, here in Clearwater. And again, as one witness described hearing an explosion before coming out and seeing the wreckage that we know at this point, killed not just people on board, but again, on the ground as well. Omar, well, I know you're going to keep reporting on this. Please keep us posted as you learn more. Well, happening right now, the genesis of the most annoying nickname I had in elementary school, <laughs> Punchy Tony Phil, making his annual prediction. Are we in for six more weeks of winter, or will he call for an early spring for the first time in four years? And can you actually trust that Phil in the same way you can trust Mattingly? Love that. Mm, Harry Enton is here to break it down no! for the accuracy of America's... Here. There's now a conspiracy that Puxitani Phil is a government operative who's going to endorse President Biden. So I will see what happens. <laughs> Punxsutawney Phil. So the big question, of course, more winter, early spring? And I'm here to break really important news, the most important news of the day. There was no shadow. Wow. There was no shadow. Punxsutawney Phil has predicted an early spring. early spring. He does this prediction every single year. I have no idea why. Just how accurate is it for the most well-known groundhog in America? Well, we go to the man who knows all the things, CNN senior data analyst and known groundhog skeptic. We share that. Harry Enton is with us now. That's aggressive. It's very aggressive, but it's true. Is Puxatoni Phil a fraud? Show your work, Harry. Show my work, unlike you. Let's take a look at the accuracy <laughs> rate. Puxatoni Phil's accuracy rate in predicting a short or a long winter, 39% correct Yikes. since 1877. You'd be better off flipping a coin. So I am here to tell you that this groundhog has pulled one over on the American people. He's trying to go out there, trying to proclaim himself some sort of an expert, when in fact he is not. Now you said yep. he didn't see a shadow. That is really bizarre because if we look at Phil's predictions, they're usually biased. He sees his shadow too much. Winter for six more weeks, six or more weeks, 108 times. An early spring, only 20 times. So we, my friends, witness history today. Puxatawney Phil decided to go against the grain. He, in fact, did not see a shadow. He's calling for an early spring. Normally he does, but the fact, as we've talked about in slide number one, is I don't really give a flying hoot what the groundhog says because that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Man, okay. you walked me right up to the brink there. I, I know, was, I thought I it was, was going to go there for nervous, a minute. Man. I was thinking, well, yep. we're cable, so these things happen. <laughs> um, maybe he's going with the spring because he also saw what Elmo said, and he knew people maybe wanted spring. Oh, that's um, nice. Right? I'm yeah. just, you know, I'm looking on the bright side there. there Glass go. half full, Harry. Try it. Um, let's look at some of the other predictions, because he's not the only game in town. 
He's not the only game in town. So if we look at other predictors, so there are other ground talks who predict the weather as well. So look, we have Essex oh. Ed who also predicts the Super Bowl. So I'm going to be very interested. Whether Tasker. There you go. Whether he picks the Chiefs or the 49ers. There's Mid Milltown Mel who unfortunately passed away in 2022 and hasn't been replaced. Folks, I know I don't want to ruin anything for you, but there hasn't, in fact, been a groundhog that's been alive since the late 19th century. They actually do replace them. Uh, final little note, there was also Staten Island Chuck. Oh, uh, yeah. Groundhogs who died after being dropped by New York City mayors. Uh, there's been one by Bill de Blasio, zero by the others. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly, we don't want to necessarily claim anything right here, but one by Bill de Blasio. So the fact is these groundhogs always do get replaced. Some get replaced a little quicker than others. This was a journey. This was a journey that I enjoyed. I'm here for you. I like to do the Phil thing. We got you. We've we got, got a lot of Phil's on this team. It's very confusing in our, in our ears a lot of times. Ear. Yeah. Yeah. Who's your favorite Phil? Um, uh -huh. This is tough. My, my, my cousin Phil. My cousin oh, Phil. Dodge. Nice cop out. Dodge. Well done, Harry. Well done. Thank you. All right, in Michigan, on the heels of a key endorsement, President Biden meeting with another group of protesters, met rather by another group of protesters, angry with his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. Congressman Dan Kildee represents Michigan. He joins us next. We now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. We do. As President Biden pressing his case, backed up by economic numbers, at least on the top line. A little bit of a victory lap yesterday with union members in Michigan after the United Auto Workers officially endorsed him over Donald Trump. But his visit to the critical battleground state also served as a reminder of a growing political concern. His slipping support among Arab and Muslim Americans. Protesters gathered outside a Biden event in the Detroit area, angry with his handling of the war in Gaza. Demonstrations like this. They've been routine and repeated in, at Biden events. And CNN has learned security was tight around the president just because of those concerns. And Michigan is home to one of the largest Arab American populations in the country. They helped him carry the state four years ago. 146,000 Muslim Americans turned out to vote in 2020. And in heavily Arab American counties, more than two thirds of them voted for Biden. He won Michigan by just 155,000 votes. But many of those supporters in 2020 now see him or say, that he is complicit in the deaths of innocent Palestinians and will not vote for him. By taking this stand, do you wonder if it will help elect Donald Trump? It probably will. We have seen four years of Trump. We have seen four years of Biden. And people don't really uh, see a difference between their presidency. Joining us now is a Democrat from Michigan, Congressman Dan Kildee. He spoke to the president last month, urged him to visit the state repeatedly. And Congressman, there is a very good reason for that. One, it's, it's part of the vaunted blue wall. It is a state that went heavily Democratic in the midterms, uh, but has trended away from Democrats, at least in public polling. But it's also one with a very dynamic kind of uh, community of voters, right? You have union workers, you have young voters in the college towns, and you have a sizable Arab American population. What you just heard there, that they will stay home, that they won't vote for President Biden. Do you think that will hold? Well, I think it's a challenge for us that we have to address. And I have been one who has encouraged the president to sit down with the Arab American community, with the leaders of the Arab American community here in Michigan, and consider their views when determining U.S. policy regarding the conflict uh, in the Middle East. 
I, I am one who believes that there's no military solution and that a ceasefire is the proper approach. So I do share many of the views of the Arab American community here in Michigan. But I think the more important thing is that the president sit down and listen to what they have to say and consider those thoughts when crafting policy on this particular issue. I, d I don't think it's uh, a, a good idea for Democrats to view this question in sort of raw political terms as it relates to the election. For the Arab American community that I represent, this is about much more than an election. It's about you know, a fundamental question of the human rights of the Palestinian people, and I think that ought to be front and center in the conversation. Yeah, it, it's a it's an important point. It also is not a monolithic community. I want to make that uh, as clear as I possibly can. When you talk to community leaders in your district, is their threshold, it has to be a call for a ceasefire? Is it just sit down and listen? Is it figure out some way to implement some policy change, even if you're not going to have a ceasefire? What do they, what would be enough sounds crass. That's not what I mean. What do they want to see that would bring them back into the fold? Well, I think the immediate issue is to stop the, the indiscriminate bombings of civilian uh, areas. And I know that there's been some modification in the, in the approach, but there's no question that there is a disproportionate amount of civilian casualties uh, in this battle. And that's the immediate uh, need. Stop that. Do yeah. what we can to stop that. Get to the negotiating table. But I think in the long term, what I generally hear is that the U.S. needs to assert a stronger position on behalf of, of the Palestinian people, pursuing a two-state solution, putting those issues, um, you know, on the front of the of the conversation, making that as important as the obvious right that Israel has to defend itself against aggression. And I think their concern, which I happen to share, is that U.S. policy has not been balanced in that sense, and I think we need to get to that. I've spoken to White House officials and say, look, we hear the concerns, we are having meetings at the White House, we are, or we're meeting with community leaders or asking to meet with community leaders. Do you think they're doing enough right now? Well, I'd like them to do more. I would like the president, you know, it's up to, to them to decide how they want to handle this, but to not view it as a political question, not yeah. view it as an issue that needs to be resolved between the Arab American community and the Biden campaign. This is a question the Arab American community has in Michigan with the administration itself. And, you know, Joe Biden is, a, is an empathetic individual. He's an empathetic president. He's a person who I think can absorb that knowledge, that information, and and I think be in a better position to act by listening to, to those communities. I know he does, I'm not trying to suggest he doesn't, yeah, but I think it's really important in this moment for the Arab American community to have that opportunity. We saw the president with uh, UAW leader, Sean Fain, the UAW just endorsed the president. It's the same week that the head of the Teamsters met with, with former President Trump. I'm interested, there was a split, I think very clearly in 2016, where leadership was versus where rank and file was. Sean Fain is a very different kind of leader. Uh, for the UAW, and I think he's got some successes to back that up. Do you think that divide changes this time around? Have you seen evidence that rank and file will be more likely to follow the endorsement? I think there is. First of all, the rank and file saw what four years of Donald Trump actually meant for them. He didn't bring back manufacturing jobs. Joe Biden has. Donald Trump would not be supportive of a union strike for a fair wage. Joe Biden was. The fact that President Biden came to the 
picket lines and stood with the UAW at their moment of truth yeah. and helped them deliver an unprecedented contract. And no matter what the political stripe of a UAW member is, they're getting a big wage increase and Joe Biden stood with them to get that. And that, that will translate. Last one before I let you go. We spoke late fall in 2016, I think probably in the speaker's lobby as we often did. Uh, and I could tell you felt something was off. Um, I don't think anybody could predict exactly how that election was going to go, but I think you felt it on the ground or you felt it from your, your people on the ground. What do you feel right now about the state? I think there's a lot of anxiety here. Um, I do think at the end of the day, the difference between 2016 and 2024 will be that people know what a Biden presidency looks like and what it means to them, and they know what a Trump presidency looks like. And I think it'll make, it'll make all the difference come November of 2024. I think folks here in Michigan will come home to Joe Biden and we'll, we'll deliver Michigan for him. Congressman Dan Kildee, always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Well, in just a few hours, President Biden will head to Delaware for the dignified transfer of three American soldiers killed in Jordan. And a multi-billion dollar settlement in California over pandemic learning loss. Why some families are still pessimistic despite the legal win. You say you're hopeful. Yes. I sense a slight tinge of doubt. It hasn't happened yet. California has agreed to a $2 billion settlement for struggling students over COVID pandemic learning losses. The payout comes after parents and community groups sued the state, demanding more resources be used to help kids who were underserved during school closures during the pandemic. Seen as Nick Watt has more. With this settlement, you know, you're not, no one's cutting you a check. No. You're not getting any money. I'm not. But I'm hoping that the kids will benefit, all kids will benefit from this. Kelly R., still struggling to help her kids catch up in math, is among the parents, teachers, kids and community groups who sued California and won a settlement. The state just agreed to spend $2 billion on tutors, extended school days, mental health support and more for kids who suffered most during remote learning, predominantly low-income black and Latino kids who are now not bouncing back as fast as kids in whiter, more affluent districts. The most pressing crisis in America today is what happened to kids during COVID. And hopefully this settlement will be a model for 49 other states. During COVID, Kelly's kids at least had a parent who tried her best and some internet. Their computers were glitchy. So then that's when I would have to, at that point, go over some of their lessons with them while I'm working from home. In California, around 10,000 schools were closed. There were between 800,000 and a million kids who had no digital access whatsoever. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they got bad education. It means they got no education. School-age kids were among those at lowest risk of serious illness from COVID-19, but suffered a lot from the restrictions to stem the spread. We're asking poor kids to pay for the public health measures that were meant to you know, benefit us all. Professor Thomas Kane and colleagues at Harvard, Stanford and Dartmouth found many more affluent kids have already regained a lot of the learning they lost during COVID, but... In some places, like here in Massachusetts, the high poverty districts did the opposite of catching up last year. They actually lost additional ground. Some, they fear, might never catch up. 
given what was lost during COVID and the systemic educational inequities that existed long before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. As a white guy, I've always kind of, you know, assumed possibly rightly, you know, that my kids are going to get a fair shake. But as a black parent, do you feel differently than that, you know, you are at a disadvantage? We are at a disadvantage, and that, that's one of the major reasons why I felt like this was important, because we cannot continue to let things like this happen and let our kids fall short. I'm hopeful that this will make a huge impact. You say you're hopeful. Yes. I sense a slight tinge of doubt. It hasn't happened yet, so I could just be hopeful in, until it happens. Nick Watt, CNN, Los Angeles. And we'll be watching uh, Nikki Haley escalating her attacks on Donald Trump, insisting he is too old and too confused to be president. And could Wales, Wales, hold the key to curbing climate change? But Weir is going to join us to discuss how the climate crisis is affecting them and how they might help beat it. We'll explain next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This Sunday, CNN is taking you to the far corners of the world for a special and stunning report on climate change. CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir embedded with a team of researchers tracking humpback whales. Why? To uncover how the climate crisis is affecting them and how they might help beat it. Here's a preview. For generations, the only way to study whales was to cut up a dead one. But then non-lethal research took hold. And while this may look medieval, One of the biggest breakthroughs is the crossbow biopsy, developed by Ari's team at UC Santa Cruz to measure everything from stress levels and toxins to, most importantly, got it, pregnancy rates. Beautiful. Perfect class example. That's the blubber layer. The skin will be sort of still back up inside this little tip here. We'll put it into that case and keep it sterile until we uh, get back to the boat to process it. Yeah. And you were telling me that the, the pregnancy rate is a huge indicator, right? Absolutely. I mean, what else, what else tells you about a population that's growing or shrinking is how many, how many newborns you're putting into the population each year. So yeah. We'll tell if that was a female, if it, if it is a female, if she's pregnant or not. It's the first time I've ever seen somebody take a pregnancy test with a crossbow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't think you get many of those. To yeah. be fair, it's really hard to get them to pee on a stick. So you know what? It's a fair I can point. See that. Yeah. 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 yeah, it is. Yeah. It definitely is. Um, Bill Weir, once again, with the best assignment at the network. He keeps topping himself. I'm so grateful. Um, so this is really, this is about what whales tell us, right? Yes. So you said, I know, if we save the whales, we all remember the Save the Whales campaign, we're really saving ourselves. Exactly. How? First of all, uh, the humpback is the greatest comeback story in conservation. They were almost wiped into oblivion, and now they're in every ocean in the world. They're the most adaptable. There was one a mile from Times Square a couple of years ago, came up the Hudson River right now. And that's just, just human attitudes changing right now. But how they help us is they are the ocean's biggest fertilizer pumps. You don't realize it when they go way down deep and scoop up these nutrients like phosphorus and iron, they can't poop down there. So when they come to the surface for a breath, they, they 
defecate, and that feeds the bottom of the food chain. That's phytoplankton blooms there. Phytoplankton creates half of our air. It draws down more carbon than three Amazon rainforests. And then the whales themselves sequester carbon, tons of it. Uh, and when they die, they fall to the bottom of the ocean, and then it locks it away there. So they are the gardeners of the deep. Uh, they bring back fish stocks in, in enormous ways. And now, though, whaling is pretty much gone. Japan still kills about 300 a year. Iceland has one last whaler. But now it is krill fishing fleets to feed uh, sort of the omega-3 nutraceutical market. It's fat mm -hmm. and f pet food and fish food. And so we're competing with these whales for their main food supply. And then the sea ice is going away. And that's where the krill lives. That's their main food as well. So new pressures now. But if we can save them, we absolutely have saved ourselves in the process. The importance of following the whole migratory journey. Yeah. Which you did. Yeah. Again, feels like a junket. Um, <laughs> and we, no, have, we it, applaud it's, your it's efforts. It's It's important. Explain to people why. Well, these are the longest uh, traveling animals on the planet. One whale named Frodo made a 7,000 mile trip from like across from Asia to Mexico. And because they move through all these waters, they, they tell us what's happening in these waters, right? And so they eat and gorge themselves down in Antarctica. Then they go up to South America, coast of Colombia and, and Peru there and make babies and then go back and forth and that. And so they are connecting the oceans, whereas beavers or elephants are engineers within little regions. Whales are really helping the entire planet. Uh, and they're such a vital piece that we didn't realize while they are being harvested for blubber and, mm -hmm. and all of that. And right now, it's interesting, there are 15 billion miles from now on the Voyager spacecrafts, there are golden records that have the hellos of 55 humans and one humpback whale chosen by Carl Sagan as sort of this romantic bottle into the universe. And now AI is moving us closer to understanding whale song. We may understand the lyrics one of these days yeah. to see exactly what they're saying. Is it a love song? Is it something else? Are they singing Baby Beluga in the deep blue <laughs> Or Baby Shark. Or Baby, or baby Shark. Um, <laughs> and that will be with you now for the rest of your day. Thank and you, you guys, have here today. Um, this is going to be fascinating. I can't wait to watch. Also, you teased the, the one hunter left in Iceland. Yes. Uh, that, so that, that was a tease. That was a very professional move there. Bill Ware, uh, we appreciate you. As always, be sure to tune in. An all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One whole hour, one whole story. Airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. CNN This Morning continues right now. Well, good morning, everyone. It's Friday, the top of the hour. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill in New York. In just a few hours, President Biden, the First Lady, and the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, will head to Delaware to join the grieving families of three American soldiers killed in Jordan and attend the dignified transfer of their remains at Dover Air Force Base. Now, the U.S. has blamed the deaths on an Iran-backed militia. On Thursday, the Pentagon chief confirmed a multi-tiered response is coming. It is still unclear, of course, when the U.S. plans to launch that retaliation. Sources telling CNN Iran did appear to be surprised by the attack by its proxies. Overnight, however, Iran's president said he would not start any war, but did vow to, quote, respond strongly to bullies. CNN's Arlette Sines is live this morning at the White House. So, uh, Arlette, here we are again. And this is, of course, also coming uh, the day after the President Biden signed that executive order targeting Israeli settlers who attack Palestinians. He is going to meet later today with the families of those fallen American soldiers as he is navigating this at home as well and dealing with everything that's going on in the Middle East. 
Yeah, he is, Erica. And the U.S. is preparing that response in a retaliation for the deaths of these three U.S. service members. Members, But for President Biden, his focus today will really be on one of the most solemn duties a commander-in-chief has, and that is attending the dignified transfer of those three U.S. service members, uh, all from the state of Georgia. They include Sergeant William Rivers, as well as two Army specialists who are posthumously promoted to the rank of sergeant, Kennedy Sanders and Brianna Moffitt. Now, the president... Uh, is slated to arrive at Dover uh, around 11.30, and he's going to spend about an hour meeting with the families behind closed doors, uh, in addition to uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Chiefs of Staff, uh, CQ Brown. They will also be on hand, and then they will uh, be on hand as the dignified transfer of their remains take place. Now, President Biden spoke by phone to each of the families on Tuesday, and in that conversation, he gauged their interest about whether they would want him on hand for the dignified transfer. He said uh, that they did accept that request. And we actually got some very rare footage of a moment where President Biden was speaking with one of the families, the families of Sergeant Kennedy Sanders. And when he informed them about the fact that they were posthumously promoting her to Sergeant, take a listen. By the way, we're promoting her posthumously to Sergeant. Oh, wow. That is the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, lot to me. My son spent a year in Iraq until I lost him. And uh, I, uh, you know, 1%, 1% of all these kids are the ones that uh, take care of 99% of us. So quite an emotional moment. Uh, the families will have some time with President Biden to share uh, stories about their loved ones and feelings after the loss of their loved ones as well. This is the second dignified transfer President Biden will attend as commander in chief. He attended one after 13 U.S. servicemen and women were killed in Afghanistan. Always a very emotional moment for these families and for the commander in chief. Now, as for that response, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said that they expect it to be a multi-tiered response. We we are still waiting word on when exactly that will be carried out. But today, the focus for the president will be on these families as he is on hand in Dover, Delaware, later this afternoon. Yeah, the, the most somber uh, and solemn part of the job. Arletta, I, I do want to ask, we saw the press conference from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, yesterday, the first time he'd really spoken uh, at length publicly since he was hospitalized. This is going to be the first time he and the president are together. Do we have any sense of kind of where they are on things after Austin did not tell the president about his cancer diagnosis? Well, Defense Secretary Austin said in that press conference that he apologized to President Biden and that he thinks that the president has been handling it graciously. But this will be the first time the two men are together in public. I will note that they were uh, in a meeting in the Situation Room earlier in the week where they were talking about the possible responses the U.S. could launch to this attack that killed those three service members. Uh, but so far, the Defense Secretary has been back at uh, the Pentagon, briefed reporters yesterday as the U.S. is thinking about what next steps they will be taking in this matter. All right, Arlette signs for us at the White House. Well, the fate of Donald Trump's business empire will soon be decided. We're now expecting the judge to issue a verdict within the next few weeks in Trump's $370 million civil fraud trial. It's just one of the many civil and criminal cases colliding head-on with his presidential campaign in just the days ahead. And Nikki Haley is calling out Trump and his super PACs for spending more than $50 million in political donations to cover his legal expenses. 
get ready to spend more campaign dollars on legal fees because those court cases have just started. He's got two in March and they go out for the rest of the year. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. Let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honing. So Ellie, is, uh, there is a lot yes. uh, on the calendar there. <laughs> What are you watching most closely at this so point? So get your notifications turned on in your phone because there's a lot of things we're waiting for at almost any moment, including four different cases, some of them criminal and some of them civil. Let's start with the New York civil fraud case. The lawsuit brought by the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, against Donald Trump and his businesses, alleging that they overinflated the value of their assets. Now, two pieces of breaking news from last night. First of all, the judge had said he was going to rule. He was going to try to rule by January 31st, which is a couple of days ago. Last night, he said actually more like early or middle of February. The other thing maybe related to that is we're learning that Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO, may be working towards a plea deal to admit that he committed perjury in this case. And if that's the case, you can understand why the judge may want to wait and see how that plays out. When the judge rules, and by the way, this verdict will come from the judge, not a jury. First of all, there are still six remaining counts in this case. On one count, the judge has already found against Donald Trump and for the AG's office. Then there's the question of how big will the monetary penalty be? The AG is seeking $370 million. And finally, Will Trump and his businesses lose their certificates, their ability to conduct business in New York? Ellie, in the political world, everybody's watching Jack Smith, right? Yes. They're looking at that one as the big case. There's a decision coming down in D.C. soon that could affect Jack Smith. How? We legal folks are getting impatient here. So, yes, <laughs> Donald Trump, this is the criminal case. He argued that he has immunity. We heard this oral argument three and a half weeks ago. And I think given how quickly the Court of Appeals scheduled that argument, yeah. we thought they were going to rule real quick. Well, here we are going on three and a half weeks. So people are wondering what's going on. Time is of the essence here because here is where we are for that argument, the Court of Appeals. Whoever loses going to try to get it, of course, up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the district court, the trial court, they've been on pause this whole time. Judge Chutkin has already made pretty clear in her other rulings. She's not expecting that March 4th trial date, which is now about a month away. That's not going to hold. But the question is, how quickly can they get it back there? And there's also Georgia. Let's yeah, not forget a, Fulton County. A couple things we do know when they're coming. Today, we will see the official courtroom response in a brief, a written brief from Fonnie Willis to the allegations that she's having an improper relationship with one of the outside people who's working on the case, Nathan Wade. She has not responded officially to that yet. And let's not forget the ballot challenge, the 14th Amendment challenge. Colorado has removed Donald Trump from the ballot. That case is going to the Supreme Court. The argument will be on Thursday. Watch it here on CNN. The Trump's final brief is due on Monday. It's like the late, great Tom Petty said, the waiting. Come it's on. It's the hardest part. The hardest. There you go. <laughs> I knew one of you would get it. I love when you bring in a Tom Petty on a Friday morning. <laughs> Ellie, thank you. Thanks, yep. Also this morning, new CNN reporting on Trump's ballot battles, speaking of. So we've learned that the lead lawyers on both sides of that Colorado case actually have little to no experience arguing before the high court. So they're moving their operations to the nation's capital to try to tap into the wealth of experienced lawyers there ahead of those oral arguments on Thursday. Well, joining us now, CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Joan, the lead of your story is fascinating. One with no experience, one with relatively little experience. Is this rare? It is for this kind of big case. And they both have their fortes that I'll get to in a second. 
But here you have, you know, consider the, the stakes here. However the Supreme Court decides this could affect who is the next president of the United States. Imagine the pressure for these two advocates, one of whom has never appeared before the, the justices, one who has a handful of times, but not in anything as consequential as the case we have before us. So that's why they're both, uh, they've both, as of this morning, moved their operations to uh, Washington, D.C., where they're going to tap into this network of lawyers who will help them practice. And these practice rounds are not just to um, get a handle on the constitutional issues and you know the law at the center of the case, but rather how they present it. And they just don't want to practice. They want to surface the weaknesses of their cases uh, so that they can fix how they, how they will uh, un unspool things in real time before the justices. And they want to figure out how to get the justices, no matter what their questions, to always pivot back to the strong points of their respective cases. Who plays the justices in these roles? I mean, how, how does that work out? So they make sure, I mean, it's really a lot like debate prep when we yeah. think about yeah. it. it. It is. In fact, it's, it's just as a quick aside, Erica, it's amazing how many really good Supreme Court advocates were high school debaters because there is a <laughs> debate prep thing to it. But what they have is that, are these things called moot courts. And you know, the real court has nine justices, but a, an ideal moot is usually four or five justices, you know, to, to prepare. And what they do is they do take on the roles of real Supreme Court justices, because those will be the ones uh, accepting the, you know, deciding the case. And Eric and Phil, these practice sessions are supposed to go exactly the way the real ones would go. A lawyer would stand at the lectern and start by saying, may it, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, have about two minutes to present his, um, his opening and then get pummeled by the justices. <laughs> And, and then get pummeled. Then get pummeled, yeah. And Jones yeah, and, is very matter-of-fact way of, of putting it. Joan, I have to ask, because I would want you in my prep for this, because I feel like you would know all the inside details about what justices, what makes them tick, what makes them happy, what pisses them off. What are some of the inside tips about particular justices? Sure. And uh, just to loop together your question and uh, Erica's earlier one, as much as I've watched these justices, I have never stood at the lectern. So the people who they have playing the justices are former uh, members of the U.S. Solicitor General's office and other advocates who have appeared dozens of times before the court so they can really channel the justices. But here's what I've observed from my uh, seat, uh, my cheap seat over in the press section, is that you have to be ready for wild hypotheticals that will really trip you up from uh, on the left, Justice Elena Kagan, on the right, Samuel Alito. They seem to be able to pinpoint the weakest sections of a, of a case, weaknesses that maybe the advocate didn't even know he or she had. And then the really the important justices to keep an eye on are the people who are at the ideological center of the bench. And that is Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. You will need Either side will need all three of those uh, for how this thing is resolved. You know, obviously, because if let's just say that, uh, again, it could be a 5-4 ruling, but Chief Justice John Roberts does not want a 5-4 ruling. So he wants okay. the center to be able to go with uh, either uh, the Trump, the pro-Trump forces or those who are trying to keep him off the ballot, Phil and Erica. So much prep that goes into all of this uh, as the countdown begins. Joan, really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. The newest CNN polling shows Donald Trump narrowly leading President Biden in a hypothetical matchup. The president hitting the campaign trail with auto workers in Detroit. There are cracks, though, beginning to emerge when it comes to Biden's Michigan coalition. We are not happy with Biden. 
But we understand that the other option is not an option that's favorable to us. Uh, he's just not somebody that I can trust. The coalition that helped President Biden win Michigan in 2020 could be showing some cracks this year. He visited the crucial battleground state yesterday to pitch his campaign to a room full of United Auto Workers as he wholly focused on improving the lives of the middle class. But that state also has a large Arab American population, some of whom showed up to protest Biden's support for Israel's actions in Gaza. Biden narrowly defeated Trump in Michigan back in 2020. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us from Detroit. Jeff, talk to campaign officials, you talk to Michigan lawmakers. You're talking to voters. What are they telling you? Well, Phil, good morning. I mean, you could see that enthusiastic support from members of the labor union, and you could hear that passionate anger from members of the Arab American and Muslim communities here. But in between, there's actually a lack of enthusiasm about the idea of a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But taken together, this points out one of the biggest challenges facing the Biden campaign. That's rebuilding his winning coalition. It's like two, just the two old white guys duking it out. Reverend Charles Williams is bracing for a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, exhausted at the notion of a nine-month battle for the White House. Some may feel, I don't have any hope in a Donald Trump, or I don't have a hope in a, in a, in a Joe Biden. As pastor of King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit, Williams was on the front lines of soaring turnout among black voters four years ago. He believes Biden can't win re-election through fear of Trump alone. It's almost like your big brother or your big sister saying the boogeyman is under the bed, the boogeyman is under the bed. Sooner or later, you figure, you know, is it really a boogeyman? You realize is maybe maybe this guy ain't the boogeyman. One of the biggest tests facing the president is piecing together a vast fraying coalition, particularly in Michigan. Trump carried the state in 2016, along with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But Biden flipped all three in 2020, a blue wall that led to victory. Cease fire now. His challenges are complicated by anger among Muslims and Arab Americans over the Israel-Hamas war, made clear by relentless protests. Including as the president visited Michigan. Uh, he's just not somebody that I can trust. Uh, Adam Abu Salah worked as a field organizer for the Biden campaign four years ago. He said he will not vote for the president again, seeing him as complicit in deaths of innocent Palestinians. By taking this stand, do you wonder if it will help elect Donald Trump? It probably will. We have seen four years of Trump, we have seen four years of Biden, and people don't really uh, see a difference between their presidency. <laughs> It was nearly four years ago when Biden pointedly presented himself as a bridge to the future. Look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw stand behind me. They are the future of this country. They're the people who are going to... Those cheers rang out in the gymnasium of Detroit's Renaissance High, where these students are now following the presidential race. I don't feel like he represents the young voter demographic at all. It's the first time Imani Williams and her friends can vote. Dante Parker said a vote for Biden is hardly guaranteed. We've been stuck in this system for far too long. Maybe we need to venture outside of it to really make some some progress now. The Biden campaign tells CNN it will draw sharp distinctions with Trump and earn the support of voters concerned about their rights, their pocketbooks, and our democracy. We are not happy with Biden, but we understand that the other option is not an option that's favorable to us. 
Norman Clement said voters are eager to hear what Biden would do in a second term, not simply what he's done or tried to do. Are you more worried about people voting for Trump or more worried about uh, young voters and others not voting at all? I'm worried about the protest vote. My message to them is that we did that in 2016. We held our vote. Folks didn't come out. Now, the Biden campaign, of course, is well aware of all these challenges, and they say they will fight to earn the support of Michigan voters and others, of course, not just simply ask for the vote. But talking to these voters from various demographic groups, young voters in particular, black voters as well, it is clear the president has some work to do. Of course, that's one of the reasons he spent a significant amount of time here in Detroit yesterday. But one wild card different from the 2020 campaign is that anger in the Arab American community. So certainly Michigan at the center of that blue wall and the blue wall determines if President Biden goes back to the White House. Yeah, something the Biden team is is very, very aware of. Jeff Salani on the trail for us. Thank you. Today, we could get our first look at the Senate border deal that House Republicans say is dead on arrival. One Democrat blames it on the GOP's loyalty to Donald Trump. You all are obsessed with the border because you bend the knee to the orange Jesus. Congressman Rob Menendez will join us next. And we're watching another powerful storm that could barrel into California this weekend. Forecasters warning life-threatening flooding could hit central and southern California with up to a foot of rain. Previous storms have already saturated some areas. Yesterday submerged some vehicles. The state says it has hundreds of firefighters on standby and two million sandbags positioned across the state. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning on Capitol Hill, we could see details of that long-awaited bipartisan border deal. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the text will be released no later than Sunday. Speaker Mike Johnson, however, is vowing to tank any deal sent to the House, arguing it doesn't do enough to secure the border. Democrats say the real reason for that is because Donald Trump told Republicans to kill it so that it wouldn't help President Biden's re-election campaign. House Republicans have now instead been pushing toward impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. That effort drawing a fiery rebuke earlier this week from New Jersey Democrat Rob Menendez. With the global dynamic that we have, we have not lived up to our oversight obligation here on this committee because you all are obsessed with the border. Because you bend the knee to the orange Jesus, as you refer to him, uh, across the aisle. That's what this is about. And we have failed. And Congressman Menendez joins us now in studio. He's also the son of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. Nice to have you with us in the studio. We heard your criticism there, right? We saw those comments getting getting a fair amount of pickup. Um, You're not the only person to criticize what's happening there when it comes specifically to immigration. We heard from Ken Buck, Congressman Ken Buck, saying he's a solid no on impeaching Mayorkas, saying his colleagues have failed to show evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. The Wall Street Journal editorial board saying, hey, your efforts would be better served in dealing with the border. That said, things are moving. How concerned are you about this impeachment moving forward? Well, it's a sham impeachment, and it sets a terrible precedent for our institution. Uh, you can have policy disagreements, and that's part of the function of operating with the with the executive branch. Uh, but Republicans know this is a political issue that plays well for their base, and so they're trying to maximize their efforts to to use it as a political foil against the Biden administration instead of dealing with the issue that we have and that we need to address. 
And so that's how it'll just continue to play out that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're going to try to extract as much from the situation as possible. So they need to impeach Mayorkas so they can make Trump look strong on the border. That's what this is about. They're trying to tear public officials down so they make Trump seem more appealable and stronger on issues that matter to all Americans. Instead of working with Democrats, instead of working with the administration to come up with real solutions, that's what we were sent to Washington to do. Mm -hmm. They have no interest in doing that. So when we look at where things stand in this immigration deal, yep. in terms of working together, there has been GOP criticism, as we know. Uh, and yet, they're not the only ones criticizing it. You have Democrats who are saying, hey, this goes a little bit too far. And just to be specific on that, um, Illinois Democrat Delia Ramirez says it's dangerous, this compromise, um, out of California. Nanette Berrigan saying the deal would set back real comprehensive immigration reform by 10 to 15 years. Is any of that Democratic criticism of this deal warranted? Well, first we have to see the full text, but from what we've heard, absolutely. Um, we need to get a better control of the border, but giving up on immigration policy without a guarantee that it'll do anything to change the dynamic at the border should be a non-starter. If you look at the supplemental, that was a real effort by the Biden administration to make improvements at the border and the situation at the border. That wasn't enough for Republicans. Then we have the bipartisan negotiations out of the Senate. Now that's not enough for Republicans. And if you look at H.R. 2, H.R. 2 is an inhumane approach to uh, the border. It would lead to lives being lost on American soil because you wouldn't let NGOs do their job to help people who are in need. So, yeah, there's things that are, are really problematic. We can't sacrifice who we are as a country, as a nation of immigrants, to satisfy Republicans who will never be satisfied on the border because they view it as a political win for themselves. We're waiting on the text, right? As That's you right. noted. Based on what you know now, though, where would you stand? We want to address the situation in a really thoughtful way. If there's bipartisan support for it, we will give it due consideration. If we change our immigration policies for the next 10 to 15 years to satisfy Republicans, that's going to be hard to accept. So it sounds like you have real reservations. I do. All right. You're not a no because you haven't seen the text, but it that's sounds right. like you're leaning that way. I would like to see the text. Listen, the Hispanic Caucus has put out a set of principles that we'd like to see as part of our immigration policy. Mm -hmm. That includes addressing the border. It's not just about how we bring people out of the shadows, how we protect dreamers. It's a more comprehensive approach. In terms of the approach, a new CNN poll out this morning, 31% of Americans support prioritizing mass deportations of all people living in this country illegally. That's up from 15% in 2019. The language is tougher from President Biden all the way on down. Is that more about polling and politics, or do you believe it's actually language about policy? I think it's, it's a lot of the politics that have gone on the last several years. People see the situation at the border, and they're responding to the Republican narrative around what's happening at the border. Listen, there is a global migration challenge between uh, global um, climate change, between failed governments in our hemisphere. There's a challenge that we have to address at the root cause and also how it's appearing at our border. But when you look at what Republicans what Republicans talk about, when you talk about a mass invasion, like you hear Texas Republicans talking about, when you talk about things like uh, replacement theory, these are things that have, that have gained hold in our electorate because that's what Republicans are talking about. Because they think it's, if they, can, if they can come up with a conspiracy theory that's dangerous enough, that Americans will trust them. So when you see the rise in support for mass deportations, it's in response to a dangerous Republican narrative. Okay, so we're going to leave it there because I do want to get your take on your father. Um, sure. As we know, Senator Bob Menendez, who is facing bribery and corruption charges for allegedly taking steps to benefit the governments of Egypt and Qatar in exchange for bribes. He's denied those charges. Um, you were not, uh, you know, uh, involved in any of this. There have been, as you know, multiple calls for him to step down. He hasn't yet said whether he is running. There are challenges, right? His trial would begin just before the primary. Should your father run again? That's going to be a decision he'll make. 
Um, you know, for us, we're focused on our re-election. We're focused on what we can do for the 8th Congressional District. And that's where our focus will remain because that's what we control. Um, he'll make his decision about what he wants to do next while he defends himself against these allegations. Should he be in classified briefings right now? I don't see a reason why not. Um, you know, he's been, he's, the charges are what they are, but he, uh, he has the right to the presumption of innocence and the right to continue to do his job, which he does every single day for the residents of New Jersey. You mentioned you have, uh, you have a race coming up, obviously, as mm. well. You have a primary challenge. Sure. Do you believe these allegations against your father are overshadowing your campaign at all? They're, they're a reason for people to be politically motivated and see an opportunity for their own political advancement. But the people of the 8th Congressional District know the work that we've done in our first year. We've solved over 1,200 cases for families across the district, including helping people get out of Afghanistan. Uh, we've brought over $11 billion back to the district for the Gateway Program, for the Northeast Corridor, grants for environmental justice. We've done an incredible amount of work that I'm proud of. That's the work that people are responding to. That's the work that's going to get us reelected. Congressman Rob Menendez, good to have you in the studio this Such morning. a pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much. Republican politicians across the country are praising infrastructure projects and economic investments. Just don't ask them how they voted on those issues, how lawmakers and Donald Trump seem to take credit for legislation they actually refused to support. That's next. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, right? You voted against that bill. I, I, right now, you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I well, just you remember, did four, you, I just did four hundred thousand dollars. But look, well, you, but you voted against you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? Listen, I, right now, I need to I need to ask my staff. That clip of Republican Congresswoman Maria Vera Salazar went viral this week, and it may have left you wondering how a lawmaker could take credit for an accomplishment tied to a law they voted against. Here's the thing, Salazar is hardly the first Republican to really try and have it both ways the last few years. In fact, she's putting a company in the, we'll call it criticize and vote against and then turn around and seek credit way to do things when it comes to two of President Biden's cornerstone legislative achievements. It turns out the more than $1.2 billion authorized between Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill and the semiconductor manufacturing law creates a lot of funding and a lot of funding opportunities for districts and states. It's not even actually the first time we've seen Salazar praise it. She praised the, quote, impressive facilities at the renovated Miami airport. Renovations financed with an $85 million investment from Biden's infrastructure law. And just last week, Minnesota Congressman Pete Stauber praised a billion-dollar investment to replace a bridge in his district. As for the legislation, well, you guessed it, Stauber voted against the bill that allotted those funds. Now, as you'd expect, White House officials have noticed, too. One advisor told me, that while those in the West Wing aren't exactly shocked, the, quote, unmitigated gall is not lost on us. That goes a long way in explaining why the White House last week targeted Stauber. Quote, POV, you voted against President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, but you are taking credit for it. Biden's done it on the trail as well. And in a visit to the district last week, Biden made sure voters should know who to thank. For decades, people talked about replacing this bridge, but it never got done until today. Until today. There's also Idaho GOP Senators Mike Crapo and Jim Risch. They were quick to congratulate a local manufacturing center on securing a critical tech hub designation designed to bolster manufacturing and production in the state. Both voted against the legislation that created those very tech hubs. South Carolina Congressman Jeff Duncan 
very excited to announce the investment in the state's energy sector. He made a point of noting he was the only representative from the state who served on the committee responsible for negotiating the CHIPS Act. He did not mention that he voted against it. Texas GOP Congresswoman Kay Granger said it was a, quote, great day for Fort Worth when the Army Corps announced funding for a project in her district from the infrastructure bill she once labeled a, quote, liberal wish list. Now, this is just a sample of what has kind of become regular practice over the course of the last couple of years. Then, of course, there's former President Trump. He's not necessarily touting specific laws, but he has no qualms about taking credit for a very robust U.S. stock market, which he says is actually doing well because of his poll numbers. Hypocrisy in politics, this is not breaking news. And to be clear, lawmakers pursuing money for their districts or states, that's part of the job. But here's the bigger picture. It's an election year. And while President Biden spends nearly every day trying to talk up those major legislative win wins in an economy that had Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying this this week. Let's be honest, this is a, this is a good economy. That message in poll after poll simply hasn't sunk in, seemingly with voters. New CNN polling shows an overwhelming majority of Americans still don't think the country is doing well. And Biden's approval on the economy, it, it's slowly ticking up, but it still hangs in about the high 30s, which raises a question that could very well determine whether voters will give Biden a second term. Will they find a way to sell his accomplishments, turn around those approval numbers? Or have Republicans somehow already beaten him to the political punch? Erica? Ah, Phil. Thank you. This is in breaking news with the latest jobs report shows the economy added 353,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate remaining steady at 3.7 percent. Joining us to break down those numbers, CNN anchor and business correspondent Rahel Solomon. This isn't just good. This is really good and beating expectations. Yeah, this is a stunningly good report, a hot report. So expectations, Erica, were closer to 176,000, 176,500, let's call it. So this is twice what Wall Street was expecting. As you pointed out, the unemployment rate remained at 3.7%, third month in a row. We've been in this really tight range of unemployment under 4% for at least two years now. When you look at the industries where we added jobs in, in January, this was what was really interesting to me. So professional and business services, really, I think the bulk of it here, adding 74,000 jobs in January. If you compare that to 2023, uh, we added about 14,000 jobs per month. So you think professional and business services, think sort of white collar jobs, uh, accounting, for example, healthcare. That's a continuation of what we saw last year. Healthcare adding 70,000, retail adding 45,000. Uh, as Phil laid out quite nicely there, this is a a really important year, both politically and economically. And so this is the first jobs report. So a lot of eyes are going to be watching this both on Wall Street, both on Main Street and Washington. And what it shows is that it's an economy that continues to hum when expectations were that we would be in a recession in 2023 or the labor market would start to cool in a significant way. It hasn't happened yet. One thing that I also thought was really interesting is the last I checked, futures were actually down on this news. Futures actually turned down on this news, at least the Dow. And the reason why, perhaps, is because earlier this week when we heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell, he said in determining when the right point is to start cutting rates, they're going to be looking really closely at reports like this, the labor report. And so a report which still shows some, some strength there, well, that indicates that maybe they can wait a little bit longer in 2024 yeah. to start cutting rates cutting rates and so that's exactly what i want to ask you yeah. about. i think we all watched the fed chair's uh press conference yeah. read the minutes or, or after the meeting um first off i missed the top because i was walking over here and saw the number on the screen and just went wow yeah. wow yeah like, again <laughs> wow to that point though does this immediately take the possibility of a march cut off the table that we didn't get much commitment on that front this is hot you said it it's hot yeah i mean i, I feel 
like what I heard is Jay Powell pretty much took it off the table, yeah, right? Already. I mean, he, he, he basically said March is not the base case. That is not what their expectations are. They don't think that there's anything that's going to change in the data over the next six weeks that would sort of suggest that a March rate cut is appropriate, at least according to them. Yeah. As you know, there are certainly some in Washington who believe that they should already be cutting rates, but that's a different conversation. It's not the only report that they'll look at. Certainly, they'll look at GDP, obviously. They'll look at CPI, the inflation report. So there's sort of a lot of indicators. But again, it it is a sign that there is strength in the labor market. Uh, The Dow's still off. uh, I need to get my eyesight checked. Uh, Just a tiny bit, bit, about 40 points. NASDAQ and S&P up right now. So it's, it's a a strong labor market when rate cuts will come after a report like this. It's looking like uh, practice your patience. Also, we've got 45,000 45, jobs added in retail. Yeah. That says a lot about the economy, too. That right? people are spending. Given that we are a consumer-based economy. Great point. Yeah. 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 Oh, thanks. It is an election year, and month after month after month, this administration's economy has defied expectations. That is an, yeah. a, a, an well objective said. fact. Yeah. Um, we'll see if people feel it. As you've reported on a lot. Another point, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Music's biggest night happens on Sunday. Just ahead, music icon Clive Davis. Hours before his famous pre-Grammy party, the man who helped discover Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, and many more, opens up about his life and legacy. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place and this is my favorite story of the week. Tracy Chapman will return to the Grammy stage for a rare performance of her Grammy-winning song, Fast Car. She's going to sing it with country singer Luke Combs, who is nominated for Best Country Solo Performance for his version of the song. We'll be right back. Music's biggest night is Sunday. It's the Grammy Awards, but the biggest party actually happens the night before. Music mogul Clive Davis's pre-Grammy bash. Oddly enough, Phil and I still haven't gotten invited. It's coming. I, yeah. I know it's coming. Now, CNN sat down with Davis ahead of tomorrow night to discuss his famous ear and production skills that played a major role in the careers of some of the biggest music stars in the world. Here's CNN's Elizabeth Wagmeister. I never thought in a million years that I would discover artists. I don't read music. I don't play music. It's just in the gut. That legendary gut discovered Janis Joplin in 1967. Since then, music producer Clive Davis has nurtured the careers of some of the biggest stars on the planet. From Aretha Franklin to Billy Joel. Springsteen to Whitney Houston. That song convinced Davis Houston was a superstar. That's a song I commissioned for the life of Muhammad Ali eight years earlier. And there's this young teenager singing the greatest love of all like I never heard it before. Houston was one of the stars Davis introduced to the industry at his famed pre-Grammy gala, which is always held the night before the ceremony. And it was Barry Manilow who urged him to start in 1976. Heads of networks, motion picture studios, directors, actors like 
Tom Hanks, Elspeth Jay-Z and Beyonce and Chris Rock, Nancy Pelosi. It was hours before that party in 2012 that Whitney Houston drowned in the bathtub of her hotel room. Cocaine use and heart disease were contributing factors. And how tough was that for you? Oh, well, it was painful. First of all, it was shocking. I had been with her 48 hours earlier. Davis said Houston was planning to record new music with him before she died. She was vital, optimistic, looking forward to the future. That's the lethal power of drugs. I called her family. I said, look, this was her favorite party. We have to celebrate her. She doesn't want us to be somber. But also provide a peaceful haven for the mourners to be together and not feel alone. Through the years, Davis says he's always tried to link the past with the present. What really stands out to you? Taylor. (laughs) Recalling the time he introduced Taylor Swift to Johnny Mathis. So he said, Taylor... You're going to see someone I don't think you've ever seen publicly before. An album of his greatest hits was on Billboard's Top 200 for 10 consecutive years. And Taylor did her trademark covering of her mouth gasping. What do you want people to remember you by? What is your legacy? My legacy is that I discovered or nurtured an unusual array of the most gifted artists of all time and that they felt safe. But to see that they were still headlining um, arenas all over the world and were not one-hit wonders was such a great feeling. Pretty amazing to sit across from Clive Davis at 91 years old, and he is still going. Also amazing that nearly 50 years later, this truly is the biggest party of Grammys weekend. I will be there, so I will try to find Jay-Z and Beyonce for you. Uh, But don't rub that in at all. That was an awesome interview, Elizabeth Wagmeister. Thanks so much. Well, it's possibly the biggest shakeup in sports since LeBron James took his talents to South Beach. It's also my favorite story of the day, Phil Mattingly. Superstar Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton switching teams. Why his move to Ferrari is such a big deal? And will it pay off? The end of an era in Formula One racing. Lewis Hamilton, who is considered to be one of the greatest drivers in F1 history, announcing he is leaving Mercedes after 11 years, moving over to, of course, one of its biggest rivals, Ferrari. The 39-year-old shares the record with Michael Schumacher for the most world titles ever. Hamilton broke multiple other records during his decade-plus time at Mercedes, cementing his place in racing history. He joins Ferrari, not this season, though, starting in 2025. Joining us from Hamilton's home country of England, F1 correspondent with Press Association, Philip Duncan. Philip, good to have you with us this morning. This is, okay, I, full disclosure, I am a massive Drive to Survive fan with my, with my son Sawyer. We love this. This was huge yesterday morning. Phil is getting on board with I'm me. I'm drafting. Can you, you're you're drafting. Yeah. See, he's already with us. Put into perspective why this is such a big deal that Lewis Hamilton is going to Ferrari. 
I don't really think that the uh, the scriptwriters at Drive to Survive, sorry, Drive to Survive, could have uh, made this one up. Hey, Lewis Hamilton um, leaving Mercedes to join their rivals Ferrari. You know, Lewis Hamilton's always spoken about the dream of, of racing it for the red team, and now it's actually coming to fruition. So it's a it's a remarkable story because no one really expected it to happen. Obviously, it's been spoken about, but Lewis Hamilton signed a two-year deal with Mercedes only in September, and now four or five months later, he's joining. Uh, their rivals Ferrari in 2025 um, you know the biggest and most well-known driver joining the biggest team it's, it's a great story do we know why he wants to win and I think he sees Ferrari as offering him the better chance of winning that elusive eighth world title the the world championship that will make him a record breaker no one else has won eight world titles and I don't think he thinks he can do that with with Mercedes and also, it's the lure of driving for Ferrari. You know, he's, as I said before, he's always dreamt about racing for them. Now he thinks it is the time to happen. Um, he's friendly with John Elkin, the Ferrari chairman, who's been instrumental in making sure this move has happened. And now it's coming to fruition. It's just a shame we've got to wait one year before it all comes yeah. together. I, there, maybe this will add to the drama. Last year was sort of drama-free. Max Verstappen wins sort of almost everything. He's with Red Bull. Um, so this may add some drama this year. Can you put this in perspective for, for sports fans at home? Is this the equivalent of, you know, a LeBron move? Is this Tom Brady going to Tampa? Yeah, totally. Because uh, as I said, Lewis Hamilton, he's the guy that transcends Formula One. He's, he's the driver that everyone knows of or has at least heard of because he, he he's, he's you know, quite different to, to many of the others that's been before and, and so successful as well. Um, and he's won so many world championships, seven, and he wants this eighth world title. And Ferrari is obviously such an iconic brand, isn't it? Everyone's aware of Ferrari, not to say people aren't aware of Mercedes, <laughs> right. but Ferrari are just so... Ferrari are just so, you know, they've competed in every year uh, since Formula One's existed in 1950. You know, they've been there every year. Such great history. And now, you know, the, the, the driver, Hamilton, the, the, the guy we all know is going to join them. It's, it's, it's such a great story and a boost that F1 really needed after two years of Max Verstappen winning yeah. pretty much every race. Totally. So hopefully Hamilton, at least in a Ferrari, can take the challenge to him. Philip Duncan, you made Erica's day. Uh, sure. It's a great story. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everyone. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.